that. Well, I said that we are going to continue on in our Acts series this morning. So uh, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 20, if you would. And uh, while you're navigating to Acts chapter 20, I wanted to ask you a question. Has anybody ever felt like they had an assignment from the Lord and you knew that if you shared it with others, people would look at you like, I don't understand. I don't get it. Yeah? I've had some things like that every once in a while where I feel like God, through the Holy Spirit, he's... He's encouraging me to do X, Y, and Z, whatever that might be. But I know that if I share that with somebody, they might disagree with me. Um, They might try to counsel me otherwise or maybe just not even understand. In a way, I think that might be one of the things that we're going to see um, to some degree uh, with the Apostle Paul over the next few weeks. Um, We're going to see in chapter 20 here for sure that the Holy Spirit has communicated something to Paul, a directive that he wants of the Apostle Paul. And over the course of chapter 20, we're going to see some interesting details about what God intends for Paul's life. And we're going to see how others who become privy to that knowledge, what their response is. I even think about uh, Jesus in John chapter 13 when he shared with the disciples that he was going to be leaving them. And you might remember that Peter said, well, where are you going? And Jesus said, well, where I'm going, you you can't come with me right now. And Peter says, oh, no, Lord, <laughs> We'll go with you. I'll I'll die for you. And Jesus' response was, I know that's what you're saying, and I know that's how you feel right now, but I can assure you, you're not ready. And of course, he reveals the information that Peter will eventually deny him. But Jesus then follows that up by comforting his disciples, by telling them, I'm going away, and you can't come with me now. But I go to prepare a place for you, And I will come back and receive you unto myself, and I will take you there to be with me. And so he gives them some comfort in that. And recently I've been thinking about even individuals in my own life, and some of you may uh, have people like this that you know of. Um, I think about my grandfather before he passed away. The year or so leading up to him passing away, he put a new roof on the house, He repaired some siding on the house. He repaired the sidewalk out front. And we were thinking to ourselves, look at him doing all this stuff. What's the point? Why is he doing all this? And for some reason, maybe he knew in his spirit that his time was becoming limited. But but we did not know that. Um, I think about my friend Rob Case. He used to be the the helicopter pilot for Channel 4. And if any of you know the current radio station, 91.5 WHKC, that is his station. And 
the year, year and a half leading up to his passing, he was working very, very diligently to set that station up so that his family would have a legacy and a livelihood and even some provision almost in perpetuity. And HKC are the initials of his wife, Holly. And of course, I suspect that he knew much more about what his time here on this side of heaven revealed or was to entail than, than we did as onlookers. Um, recently, a great, great friend of mine, <clears throat> fellow ministry leader in our ministry downtown, his name was Burt Robinson, he passed away. And he started putting his funeral service together back in July. He passed away on November 29th of this year. And it was so important to him that his final memorial service, though he would be gone physically, be honoring and glorifying to God. And so since July, he had been putting together and organizing almost every last detail that he wanted to have happen at his celebration. And even last year, during the pandemic, he put together a whole CD. He was an accomplished pianist and musician. And he gathered all of his musician friends and family and had them all participate on this audio CD that he produced with 10, 12 tracks. And it has become this testimony, this legacy, now that he is gone. And so he knew, at some level, what God had in store for him. And what these individuals were most concerned about with a truncated timeline, was the care, the comfort, and the encouragement of others. You know, you guys know this. Modern society and modern culture says, if your time is limited, take all your money, liquidate it, go buy the fancy car that you've always wanted, go head to the beach, go complete your bucket list of things to do. You know, some of that's not bad, but... I think about these friends that I know and how important it was for them to speak into the lives of other people and to honor God every last minute of their life here on this side of heaven. They were so much more uh, concerned with prioritizing and encouraging their loved ones around them than being selfish and saying, well, my time is limited. I'm just going to go live it up and be merry." So I think in some sense we're going to see that a little bit with the Apostle Paul here as we get into chapter 20. And to set the stage for this, I'm going to ask you guys to look back at chapter 19, verse 21 and 22 for just a moment, if you would. Because you're going to say, well, what's this assignment you're talking about? And how does everything that you just said even relate to what we're about to see in chapter 20 with Paul? Well, here's what I think we're going to see Verse 21 of chapter 19, Luke writes this. He says, Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And then in verse 22, And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, we read that. Go back to chapter 20, look at verse 16. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus in order that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. 
Now I'll look at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 20. And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now, chapter 20, verses 37 and 38. Hopefully you guys are starting to understand this pattern. In verse 37, Luke writes, And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Now look at chapter 21, verse 4. And after looking up, now this is in another city, mind you, after looking up the disciples, uh, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul, through the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. And when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Now, our last reference jumped down to chapter 21, verse 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And we, when we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him, in other words, begging Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And finally, in verse 14, And since he would not be persuaded, Luke says that we fell silent, remarking, Well, the will of God be done. So hopefully you guys were able to kind of see this this fabric. Luke tells us in that first verse of 21, verse 21 of chapter 19, that Paul understands God's directive for him to is eventually to make his way to Jerusalem. And then we learn in chapter 20 that Paul's trying to get there at least by Pentecost. Maybe even time for Passover, but it sounds like he's going to miss Passover, so he at least wants to get there for Pentecost. And then we see in verses 22 and 23 that the Holy Spirit is telling Paul, that bonds and afflictions await him. And then the Ephesian elders, when they're gathered there saying goodbye to him, are weeping because it's going to be the last time that they'll see Paul. The disciples in Tyre, they don't want, or Tyre, they don't want Paul to go to Jerusalem because they know what's going to happen to him, and then they say farewell. And then in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 21, we see that Paul could not be persuaded otherwise and was willing to die if necessary. So in light of all this, you might remember that at Saul's conversion, God spoke to Ananias and said, I'm going to show Saul how much he has to suffer for my namesake. So we see here, we see a fabric We see a directive by the Holy Spirit that Paul is to ultimately begin making his way to Jerusalem. And he knows that. He's convicted. He's convinced that is what he is to do. 
and he continues to get this knowledge and information that what awaits him will be bonds, bonding and, and, and afflictions. And even others around him are weeping at this knowledge, and some are even saying, Paul, don't go. But he knows he has to go. And so something that I want us to look at this morning specifically is that while Paul understands very acutely that he is to eventually go to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to him there, his time in between verse 21 of chapter 19 and ultimately arriving in Jerusalem is filled with opportunities where Paul comforts and encourages the body of Christ. Just like those examples I I shared with you about my own life and these individuals who I've witnessed that as they were nearing the end of their lives, what they chose to do with their time was to comfort, encourage, and leave a legacy that honored God to care more about the interests of the people around them. That's what we're going to see with Paul here. We're going to see Paul prioritize the comfort and the encouragement of his fellow peers and disciples and various believers in the cities in which he visits. So, our focus this morning is just going to be verses 1 through 12 of chapter 20. That's all we're going to look at, but we're going to spend some time in other scripture to do that. So, in verse 1 of chapter 20, it says... And after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. So we see here that the first thing Luke tells us after this riot that we saw a couple of weeks ago that Michael shared with us at the end of chapter 19, there was a riot that broke out in Ephesus. And the riot was based on the gospel disrupting commerce, disrupting the livelihood of the silversmiths. It was coming in with truth. It was revealing the flawed nature of pagan gods and goddesses. It was an attack on the polytheistic religions of the Greeks and the Romans. And boy, those Ephesians didn't like that, did they? The businessmen said, this is a problem for us. It's affecting our livelihood. And a riot arose. And Michael walked us through that a couple of weeks ago. And so what we see here, Luke tells us, is that after this uproar, after this riot had settled down and it ceased, the the proverbial dust had settled, if you will, that what Paul does is he calls the disciples unto himself, And Luke says that he exhorted them. Now, the word there for exhortation or exhorted is the same word we get from comfort and encourage. You guys have heard us talk about this before, the Greek word uh, parakaleo or paraklete, as the Holy Spirit is referred to, our helper, our comforter. The same root word is being used here by Luke when Paul addresses these disciples. In other words... Paul is comforting these disciples after this riot has taken place, but before he beats feet and gets out of town. He's not rushing. He's not racing. He's not escaping Ephesus. He understands that he is called to go to Macedonia. But before he leaves and goes to Macedonia, he wants to make sure that these believers that he is leaving have been comforted, have been exhorted, have been encouraged. 
And that's what we see him do here. Now look at verse 2. Luke tells us, And when he had gone through those districts, in other words, the districts of Macedonia, and had given them much, what? Exhortation. He came to Greece. So he went to Macedonia after Ephesus, and he exhorted the believers and the disciples in those regions. Now remember what we said here about chapter 19, verse 22. Apparently, Paul had sent Timothy and Erastus ahead of himself into Asia and Macedonia, and he would likely meet up with them there. So that's one of the things that's taking place here in Macedonia. But the other thing that's taking place is that Paul is likely writing 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth while he's there in those regions of Macedonia. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in 2 Corinthians this morning looking at that. I said that we were going to see Paul's comfort, but not all of it was going to occur here in Acts. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. Keep your, your finger on Acts chapter 20 for sure. We're going to be coming back to this. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Some of you might remember some of these passages as we had gone through 2 Corinthians a few years ago. But 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Now keep in mind, Paul's going through the regions of Macedonia. He's encouraging and exhorting believers in those regions, as Luke told us. And while he's doing that, he's writing this letter. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. And then in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. In other words, in Ephesus there, there was some affliction. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. And so, one of the things that he's reminding the church in Corinth, the Corinthians, is that he himself and his fellow workers in the faith have experienced much affliction, but they have found comfort in God alone. And they have found comfort even in the prayers of those churches and those believers whom they minister to. And he's saying to them, hey, 
the same comfort we have is the same comfort you may have. And we are comforted by your prayers, and I covet those prayers, and I pray for you continually. And you see, he's highlighting this symbiotic relationship that he has with believers in the faith. And he's writing to them to comfort that church in Corinth. And some of you might remember that a lot of what Paul had to do in that second letter, which was actually this fourth letter, was to defend his ministry. You might remember that he was being attacked and um, false teachers had come in and they were making accusations about Paul and saying, ah, you know, he's not the real deal. And Paul is having to defend himself among the church in Corinth, much through that second letter. But the other thing that we see throughout this second letter is this theme of comfort. And as far as I can tell... The idea of comfort is mentioned 19 times in 2 Corinthians. So not only is Paul defending his ministry with the church in Corinth, but he's also got this other theme of comfort that he is trying to share with them. And he's writing that, having left Ephesus and comforting those believers, having gone through the regions of Macedonia, he's comforting their disciples, and he's writing a letter to Corinth about Comfort for them. Now, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 4 through 7. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. And so we see there that one of the afflictions and, and torment that Paul experienced, he said, when he came into the region was that he didn't find Titus right away. He had sent Titus on to Corinth previously, and Titus was to return back to Paul with a message about how the Corinthian church was doing. And one of the things that Paul was really concerned about was his third letter, which is in between first and second Corinthians, and we call that the severe letter. It was a painful letter, and Paul understood that the receipt of that letter could be very difficult for that church in Corinth, and he was waiting to hear a report from Titus, and when he gets to the region, he has not found Titus yet, and he's anguished. It is causing him great distress, but then he realizes, or when he finally meets up with Titus, Titus brings a great report, and so Paul says, I was finally comforted after hearing about you. And we are grateful for you guys. Now, the last thing we'll look at here in 2 Corinthians. Uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, 
not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Okay, now jump over to chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, verses 1 through 5. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the, uh, to the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren that are boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. And we'll come back and we'll talk about this for a second. Lest, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, uh, we, not to speak of you, should be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Oh, my goodness, there's a lot there, isn't there? The reason we looked at those first couple of verses in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians and then those first few verses of chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians is because one of the things that Paul is writing to the second, to Corinthians is to remind them that when he comes to them and visits, one of his goals and intentions is to receive the offering that had previously been promised by the church in Corinth that was to be sent to the church in Jerusalem. See, one of the things that Paul would do when he would travel to these other regions was to take up an offering that he would then take back to the saints in Jerusalem who were struggling, who were oppressed, who were afflicted, who were being persecuted by the Jews. And so these other churches in these other regions would often send their support monetarily with Paul. And apparently, Corinth had promised a gift of some sort. And you all know from our studies that Corinth was a a very hot spot of commerce. It was very wealthy. Ephesus was very wealthy. But the region of Macedonia in between those two areas was of much affliction, was not as wealthy, slightly more impoverished. And Paul writes here and he says, Corinth, I'm coming to you guys, and I expect that when I come, you will give generously just as you had promised. And he says, I'm giving you a heads up because there may be people who come from Macedonia with me and they will witness your gift, whatever it may be. And he says, they just gave really generously. Macedonia, who is not as wealthy as you are, who is suffering from afflictions and has a lot of trials right now, just gave incredibly abundantly. For those saints in Jerusalem. Kind of like, hey, make sure you guys step up the way God has blessed you according to his gifts and his grace to you. That's what he's saying to this church in Corinth. So, all that put back to Acts chapter 20. So he has comforted those in Ephesus. He has now gone through the regions of Macedonia, comforted and encouraged those believers, and concurrently he writes his letter to Corinth, 
And as he writes that letter, he's comforting them by text. Ancient text messaging. And reminding them, hey, look at the comfort we have in God. Now, Luke tells us at the end of verse 2 that after he had gone through the regions of Macedonia and comforted them, he came to Greece. And in verse 3 he says, And there, in Greece, Luke says, He spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he determined to return back through Macedonia. So what Luke tells us is now he has moved on to Greece, okay? And he's been there for about three months. What do you think Paul was doing in Greece? At this time, he's probably spending a bulk of his time in Athens and now in Corinth. This is the visit that he was referring to when he said, I'm coming to you guys, and I'm looking forward to my visit. I'm going to take up an offering for the saints in Jerusalem and so on and so forth. So he's spending three months or so there in Corinth. And we don't know a lot about that time. We don't know a lot about what he did while he was there. But we can generally assume that he's ministering to them, that he's comforting, he's encouraging, he's preaching, he's you know, uh, encouraging them in sound doctrine the way he does. But you know what is believed to have taken place in this three months? He likely wrote the letter to Romans at this time. So, remember what he said in chapter 19, verse 21, that he purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem and after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. One of the things we know about Paul was that he was uber excited to get to Spain and Rome. He really, really wanted to go visit them. So keep your finger in Acts chapter 20 again, and we'll navigate to Romans for just a moment. Romans chapter 1, keeping your finger in Acts chapter 20. Chapter 1, verse 9. See, fortunately, I'm keeping you guys all very close in these books. I'm not going all the way back to Old Testament, New Testament. You know, I'm keeping you all real close in these books here. Romans chapter 1, verse 9 through 15. Paul writes this to the Romans, For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. In other words, you, Roman church. Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at least by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. In verse 13, And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He says, thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So what he tells us here, what he reveals to the church in Rome, likely while he's at Corinth, is, I really, really want to come see you guys. 
I'm super excited about seeing you, and I've been prevented from coming to see you thus far. Even though I would like to, my circumstances have just not allowed me to. But did you notice what he wrote? He said, I'm super excited because when I come to see you, I know that we're going to be mutually encouraged, that our faith is going to encourage myself and you guys. I'm going to be encouraged by you, and you're going to be encouraged by me. How awesome is that? How cool would it be to be be listening to this letter being read as a Roman in the Church of Rome, okay? And you hear the Apostle Paul saying, I can't wait to get there and see you guys because I know that I'm going to be encouraged by you. That's cool. That is a neat, encouraging, and comforting truth that Paul writes. Now, I think our last external reference. Stay here in Romans. Let's go to chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verses 22 to 33. Romans chapter 15, verses 22 to 23. He says, For this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you. We talked about that, that he really wanted to come to see them. Uh, But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? That's pretty comforting. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. In other words, I'm taking, he was writing in Corinth, to Rome. I'm going back to Jerusalem, and I'm taking the provisions that I have collected for those who are afflicted in Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, and I have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. After I have been to Jerusalem, after I've done this assignment that I have, I'm going to come see you guys by way of Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Watch this. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Go ahead and flip back to Acts chapter 20. Think about those words that we just read, both in chapter 1 and chapter 15, that Paul wrote to the Romans. He says, I make mention of you in my prayers, always remembering you, that both of us might be encouraged. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. I'm longing to come to you. Uh, I first enjoyed your company. I am coming to you in joy. I want to find refreshing rest in your company. I mean, That's just a short little list of phrases and vocabulary he used when he wrote just in those short little snippets that we read, that he wrote to Romans. That's beautiful. That's encouraging. That's comforting. 
I mean, even in this larger context of the book of Romans, which is an amazing theological, theological treatise that Paul writes. Many of you know, we went through Romans a few years ago, and we, we dissected it, how God, you know, shares that his wrath is justified, right? That his judgment for sin is real, that mankind has turned their backs on God and will experience his wrath, but then he goes on, Paul goes on to say, but God, through Jesus Christ, has justified us. And then he goes to talk about our justification leads to our sanctification. And then he reminds them, oh, in, in 9, 10, 11, Israel, don't, don't worry, God has not turned his back on you either. He has preserved a remnant. And then in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, he gives these practical applications. Now, he says, because you have been saved, because you've been justified, because you have sanctification, because you will ultimately be glorified through Jesus, now chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, live like it. It's the practical aspect of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And in all of that, in all of that amazing theological treatise, as I call it, of Romans, you get this love and this soft side of Paul sharing with his fellow brethren in Christ Jesus, I can't wait to come see you. I'm excited about the opportunity to be mutually encouraged and comforted when I get there. That's, that is beautiful. And so, our last section this morning. So we've seen Paul comfort those believers in Ephesus before he leaves for Macedonia. We've seen him comfort the believers throughout the districts of Macedonia while writing to the church in Corinth. And then we've seen him now write to Rome about comforting and exhorting and encouraging them And our last section is just going to be verses 4 through 12. And we won't spend a lot of time in this, but he says, Luke says, and he was accompanied. In other words, after he had left Greece, Athens, Corinth, he's going to make his way back through Macedonia. Okay, And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Purus, and by Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. So these are representatives from many of these churches in these cities, and they're now traveling with Paul. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And Luke says, And we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came to them at Troas within five days. And there, there in Troas, we stayed seven days. Now this is the cool part that we'll finish up with. Verse 7, and on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, that's a really, really diplomatic way of saying Paul was super long-winded, and he just kept talking and talking and talking until midnight. We'll come back to that. And verse 8, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a certain young man named uh, Eutychus sitting on the windowsill. And he was sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Verse 10. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. 
And when he had gone back up, he had broken the bread and eaten, and he had talked with them a long while until daybreak, and then he departed. And then verse 12, and they took away the boy alive and were greatly, what? Comforted. They took the boy away after Paul had departed, and they were greatly comforted. So what we're going to see here is that Paul... Once again, still in the back of his mind, knowing that God's directive for him is to eventually make his way back to Jerusalem. He knows that afflictions await him when he gets there. Don't know what it's going to look like, but he's got another gentleman that is, you know, everybody's telling him, don't go. He's here in Troas. And what's on his mind? He wants to preach, teach, comfort, encourage. He wants to use every last second he's got before he has to depart to minister and and spend time and fellowship. You see, it says that they gathered together on the first day of the week. This is the first reference we have to Christians gathering on Sunday, on the first day of the week. In Scripture, this is the first reference we have. And it says they gathered together to break bread. And so they're fellowshipping, they're hanging out, And Paul's not going to waste this opportunity. He's not going to be selfish and go, I'm going to go take a nap. I'm going to go rest before I have to get on the boat, before I have to depart. No. I'm going to take every last minute to spend time with these fellow believers in Christ Jesus and encourage them and talk to them and teach them and tell them everything that God is giving to me to share. I mean, it says that he prolongs his message until midnight. So he's been talking for a long time. It reminds me of you know Jesus there on the banks speaking to the masses, and he's, it says that you know the day had been waning and everybody's still sitting there and they're enjoying what they're hearing and, and they're just totally engaged and they don't want to leave, but yet the disciples know this audience is going to be getting hungry. And Jesus says, well, go give them something to eat. Go find them something to eat. And so what we learn here, what we see, now there's a few things that Luke tells us, right? He had prolonged his message until midnight, so he's, he's, he's getting every last word in that he can. Um, Luke mentions that there were many lamps in the room. I thought that was kind of interesting, and I don't know if any of you have any thoughts on that, but Luke's a physician. He's usually into the details. He tells us there were many lamps in the room. So this third floor upper room is certainly well illuminated, And I wonder, this is pure speculation on my part, I wonder if maybe the heat from the lamps, maybe the oil and the fumes from the lamps, things like that, I wonder if they started to have an effect on Eutychus. You know, this young boy sitting in the windowsill, presumably kind of hanging out with some cooler, fresher air, trying to stay awake, just trying to listen to Paul as Paul continues on and on about the things of God, He just can't keep his eyes open. It's hot up there and just, boom. You know, if we turn the heat up in here on you guys extensively, you'd start to get a little droopy-eyed and you'd you'd struggle. You'd be yawning. You know, you'd go, gosh, Dustin's getting long-winded. I can't keep my eyes open anymore. Get the toothpicks out, you know. And so we see that Eutychus falls out the window falls asleep, down three floors. And yet, Luke, this doctor, doesn't tell us a whole lot about that. Right? 
Luke seems more concerned about recording the details about Paul and simply just says, Eutychus falls down to the third floor, and when they picked him up, he was dead. And he says, Paul goes and lays on him and says, he's not dead. The physician, that's the extent of the information the physician gives us, which kind of tells you what Luke is really highlighting for us and is most concerned about is Paul's activity and very, very little about establishing the death because that was just a fact. It just, it is what it was. You know, he, he was dead. Paul goes down there and through the Holy Spirit, through God's directive, he's alive. You know what I wonder? Some of you might know uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Elijah. There was an instance where Elijah laid on a young boy and God chose to bring that boy back to life. There was another instance where Elisha did something very similar, laid on a boy and God brought that boy back to life. So we have examples of Elijah and Elisha doing something very similar. Do you think maybe that was running through Paul's mind? Do you think the Pharisee of Pharisees, as Paul calls himself, one steeped in the knowledge of the law and the Old Testament, do you think maybe that was running through his mind when he learned that Eutychus had fallen from the third floor? He runs down there, lays on top of him, and God chooses to revive Eutychus. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. And so at daybreak, he kept on talking. This happened at midnight, Luke tells us. And Paul kept on talking. After Eutychus is revived, Paul goes back upstairs, continues to break bread with the believers, and speaks until daybreak. All night, all day long into midnight, and then all day, all night long until daybreak before he departs. That, friends, is somebody who is extremely interested and extremely concerned and extremely prioritizing the health, the well-being, the spirituality, the discipleship, the encouragement, the comfort of those around him. Not placing himself first, but extremely invested in the lives of others. And it says that as a result, they were comforted. As a result of Eutychus being revived, and as a result of what Paul had done in the time he had spent with them, it says they were comforted. And so, for us this morning, I would say that the examples that we've seen here in this time with Paul, and what we will continue to see over the next at least week, maybe a couple of weeks, it really reflects a quality of relationship with God and others. Isn't that something that we've seen with Paul? His concern for the comfort and the encouragement and the disciples, or the discipleship of others, really reflects a quality of relationship with both God and with those around him. And we see a passion for the growth and the instruction of others, um, a desire to invest in the lives of others. We see a pouring out of Paul, of himself, as he ministers to others, even when it's not convenient. I firmly believe that there are a lot of times where Paul put others first and himself second, even when it wasn't very convenient, it wasn't ideal, and he poured himself out as a drink offering for the benefit of others. And he's doing this all while the Holy Spirit is continually reminding him 
eventually you are to go to Jerusalem. And when you go there, you'll experience affliction. And you're going to suffer for the God's glory. So how might our lives begin to reflect a similar passion for those around us? Each one of us in this room have a sphere of influence. We have people whom we have a relationship with, that we have a connection with, with whom we have an opportunity to invest in their lives, to make ourselves second, to make them first for the cause of Christ, to help them, to facilitate a discipleship growth in them, that they might be comforted and encouraged, that they might grow in their relationship with Christ. You see, life doesn't have to completely stop for us and have this major redirect. We can be about the business of comforting and encouraging others and discipling others as we go about our lives daily in our places of education and work, certainly worship and and recreation, all those other arenas where we find ourselves regularly. That's what Paul was doing. As he traveled, he was comforting, encouraging, and he was discipling others. That's what we're called to do. That's what the Great Commission is about. As you go about your life, you are to be making disciples by baptizing and teaching them everything that I've commanded you, Jesus says. So maybe, maybe as a New Year's thought for us, as we turn over new leaves and say, hey, I've got a fresh start, maybe a commitment we might make to God and to ourselves is to be mindful about those opportunities where we can be encouraging and comforting and discipling those around us with whom we have relationships. Amen?